When Tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle, which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose? While you're thinking, try not to fuck up the glass. Tillamook ice cream. Extraordinary dairy. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I've returned. I'm Louis Bertel. I, I stay being here, except this week I'm in my childhood bedroom in the suburbs of Chicago. So if I regress to an emotional, childlike state, you'll know why. Because I'm surrounded by things like cuckoo clocks and posters of animals, which is what the Vertel, a.k.a. Vertel family, is obsessed with. Okay, but who stays in this room when you're not there? Because there's a distinct lack of, I don't know, 70s paraphernalia. That, unfortunately, is just my disease. My my mom can be swayed into wearing a Carpenter's t-shirt that I buy for her every once in a while. But this this house is not awash in, like, you know, uh, uh, posters of Faye Dunaway movies and stuff. Mm, okay. Yeah, it's, it's just it's giving, it's giving, like, beachside resort. Oh, yeah. Ira can see me on Zoom right now. Every wall in my parents' house is, it's a specific green. I'm going to call it Girl Scout green. And I don't know where, when they settled on this, but it's like clearly a kink of theirs. It's just everywhere here. Okay. Troop Beverly Hills. Troop Beverly Hills, yes. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if we ever remake that movie, who do you want in the Shelley Long role? Judy Greer? But, she would be great. She, she also kind of reminds yeah. me of Shelley Long, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, but honestly, I feel like we're hurtled towards a, um, I mean, it would be very on the nose because of Abbott Elementary, but I could also see Quinta starring in the Shelley Long role in a True Beverly oh, Hills remake. That would be fantastic. God. Yeah, I actually, there'd be a lot of good answers for this. I mean, you could throw Sandra in it and be good, but I think Quinta is the more... 2022 correct response yes yeah um we have an episode this week. oh my god it's actually daunting sometimes we start an episode of keep it and i'm like will we fail here we go <laughs> <laughs> well we can't fail twice in a row lewis i'm kidding oh last week was uh, wow <laughs> no actually i want to say thanks to everybody who reached out not just about guy being great of course but angelica bastian i mean one of a kind. I mean, I don't know how else to put this, Ira, but she's one of us. One of these people who obsessively just knows shit. Yes, she does like less things than us, but she right. is fantastic. I, I adore Angelica. We've been friends for years. So, um, we, th- we threw down about Paul Newman and Joanne Wordboard. I actually felt bad that you weren't here for the Nope discussion, but I have the feeling your opinions will somehow leak their way back onto this podcast anyway. That trash. I'm kidding. I actually like to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got DMs myself um, before the episode even came out um, that were like, um, the last time y'all discussed a Jordan Peele film, I didn't like it. So what's happening oh. this week? And I was like, first of all, I'm not even on this week's episode. So <laughs> stay pressed. Yeah, stay to, pressed before to, even to, being to, pressed. <laughs> <laughs> to bring back some um, late two, 2010s. Um, slang. 
But like, I find myself saying that word sometimes because there's no other word for it. It's such a specific version of angst that a person can be. I saw you use it this week in reference to Diane Moran, who I'm sure we'll get into during our Beyonce conversation. I mean, it did come out. It did come out because it's a specific thing that I think is born on the Internet when someone is being pressed. There's no other definition of what Diane Warren was this week. (laughs) Um, But we will be getting into Renaissance this week. Um, We will be joined by um, the fantastic Brit Julius uh, to discuss Renaissance. Um, And then we're also going to get into this season of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, which is finally over. Uh, I I think finally... You know, it felt like it went on for seven years. It did, but I also enjoyed all of it. Oh, yeah. It was very, I don't know who else to put it, chill. Yeah. You know, they took away the competitive vibe and created this. I would compare it to whose line is it anyway? You know, the points yeah. don't matter, et cetera. It was very fun. It was, it was, it was nice. It was, it was like us doing keep it up every week. Which is a little sickening. As you know, <laughs> optimism after a while becomes bleak. But of course it is drag race and all of that came crashing down with the finale and the girls are fighting. Right. Good. B- as back usual, to normal. As usual. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're going to finally do like a breakdown of our thoughts on this season, the winners and the contestants. And this episode is really just for the gays because our guest this week is Neil Patrick Harris. He's one of the more famous gays. In fact, if you had to rank all the gays, he'd probably be in the top 20. I mean... Top 10? M- maybe number one, like, globally name recognition at this point since Ellen DeGeneres returned to her home planet. <laughs> she lost one of her own Ellen's Game of Games, and she fell into a sandpit. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, when you lose the Ellen Game of Games, you die. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, it's devil in the white city. You've got to that, right? There's just dead <laughs> celebrities underneath her stage. <laughs> Kristen Bell is trapped under some floorboards. Uh, someone make Jamila play. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, anyway, we will be right back with a lot of keeping. Exciting news. The final episode of Mother Country Radicals is out now. In the show, host Zaid Dorn explores both the progressive reasons and deadly consequences of some of the most radical organizations of the 1970s, including the Weather Underground, Black Panthers, and the band Chicago. I was going to say Bee Gees. Damn it. You You can binge all 10 episodes of Mother Country Radicals right now, wherever you get your podcasts. The lesson here is that we're both thinking about David Foster songs. (laughs) On the latest episode of X-Ray Vision, Jason and Rosie are diving into the exciting new Marvel announcements and talking about their experience at Comic-Con. This episode is packed with all things MCU, and the hosts are discussing tons of theories about where the franchise is headed, including what might happen in the new Black Panther film with Namor. You can listen to new episodes of X-Ray Vision every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Be 
Beyonce released Renaissance, her seventh studio album, to widespread acclaim on Friday, and it's already well on its way to number one on the Billboard 200 charts. And we are joined this week by the fantastic Britt Julius, music critic for the Chicago Tribune and a freelance journalist, to get into all things Queen Bee and Renaissance. Thank you. Hi, thanks for being here. So excited. So excited to talk about this album. I'm but very... is it more important to you than the new Shania Twain documentary, which I also saw? Way <laughs> pros and cons of both. I didn't know there was a new Shania Twain documentary, but I do think her personal life is really fascinating. So I would yes. be very interested to learn more about that for sure. You think you're going to get more insight into Mutt Lang than you do. That's what I'll say about this documentary. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what I will actually say about Renaissance is, and I think I had tweeted this like weeks ago, but um, we've been in such a dormant period since Beyonce's last project that th I was like, there are people in my life, um, especially since I had moved back to New York and had like met new friends there in the past years since the pandemic. There are new people in my life who do not know how deep beehive I am. And I feel like it was, I feel like we were all sleeper cells and it was reawakened as this album was approaching. Cause like, as we said, you know, before we started recording, I'm like, why am I fighting with Diane Warren on Twitter? <laughs> like, like why it just came over me. I'm like, protect Beyonce. <laughs> they have it together. And then, you know, the rumbling start happening with like a new album and it's like, okay, I don't care about anyone else. Like all other artists are like terrible. Like she's the only one who can do it. Like let's just dissect everything. And I don't know. I feel like I don't always stay dormant. Like I've usually, I follow the Beyonce tag on Twitter. And so like real hmm. deep beehive, they're just talking about like random stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like, let's talk about that. And it's like, like, do you talk about anything else? But yeah, I joined a Beyonce community on Twitter because they have the community tabs now. Uh, and it is just fascinating seeing people who all day just like, and oh, random things too. It'll be like, well, what's your favorite track off Dangerously in Love? Just randomly in the middle of the day, like just people having discussions. And I love it. I want to say about her, I like that we get to be surprised that she released a hard dance album, even though she is still the preeminent dancer in pop music. It's weird that, that it's a surprise. It's like when Barbara Streisand is suddenly great in a comedy again. It's like, no, guys, she's like one of the best comic actresses ever. It's just also the third thing she's good at. You know, it's like, you know, Beyonce is still the preeminent like singer, uh, you know, superstar in other regards. Uh, and to put dancing on top of it is feels like, oh, what a fun new thing you're trying, even though it's also a definitive thing you do. It's kind of strange. I mean, I was like, now that you say that, I mean, she's been around for, you know, almost 25 years now. And she is, you know, we're so used to her being in R&B, um, touching on hip hop, touching on a couple other sort of genres as well. But it was almost like she, you know, from a fan perspective, is like, was she kind of like hesitant to kind of touch upon those sort certain genres or what? Like no one was really listening to a lot of, um, you know, dance and electronic music unless it was like that really kind of terrible, like 
2010s, like EDM kind of stuff. So she was like, okay, people are, you know, feeling house a little bit more so I can kind of go into this genre that I actually really love and just really hasn't like had its due. So I don't know. It's kind of funny to think about because she's just, it seems like a really perfect fit actually, you know, because like that's a genre growing up with it, at least like in like the nineties where it was all about these like diva powerhouse vocals. And she is like one of maybe like three contemporary artists who could like pull it off, you know, because most mainstream girls don't really have the the range to be able <laughs> to kind of, you know, hit like a, a crystal water, <laughs> you know, active. So yeah. Uh, it I would say that it feels like the coming out of the pandemic um and this sort of need to be back around people, the need for dance again, you know, we had chromatica we had future nostalgia you know like jesse Ware's album it's just like people are feeling more like they want to dance and being around people and it feels like it's the time for that but what i think about like you know other current contemporary pop stars who have like dance remixes that i would hear in like the club and like if i'm going to a party in new york i'm like there aren't that many beyonce ones you know and now i feel like there will be yeah. Uh, because yeah. she's like, okay, let's do this um, in the way that, you know, it's, I love the hearkening back to, you know, like Donna Summer, you know, like it feels like, it feels fun, you know, like I was reading um, this book, like Life and Death on the Dance Floor in New York, um, and it was just talking about like the old gay clubs and dance clubs in New York and stuff. And there was this one where they talked about this club, like the Saint, where it was like, it opened up and it was like, it peaked when like Donna Summers dim the lights played. And it was like, they changed the lighting and there was just nothing but like stars on like the ceiling. And it felt like it transported people. And they were like, I'm coming back to this every fucking night until I die. And it's just like, it's nice that Beyonce has stepped into a role of like delivering an album that I feel like that, you know, like I heard some of it out in um the bars when i just went out with a friend on sunday and i'm just like this is what i've been craving and djs are ready to play it people want to hear it um i don't know it feels like you know when like a diva like that would drop something in like the 70s or 80s or something you're just like i've got to get to the club to hear this Absolutely. Well, I think it's like, you know, it's not just in my mind, at least it's not just that she's releasing this music, but it's that this kind of music is being released at all. Like I've been complaining to my friends forever. I'm like, no one makes dance music anymore. Like no one seems to want to have fun. Everything is kind of just like, like druggy and sad and weird and like emo and like for TikTok and like soundtracking your life and things like that. But I'm like, what happened to the music where you're just like, we're going to get drunk. We're going to get, you know, like effed up. We're going to have so much fun. We're going to dance. We're going to party, like let loose, do whatever. And so it's just, it's like, it's someone of her stature, like releasing that kind of music. And then just the fact that it's being released at all, you know, it's kind of like, okay, you have like the freedom to actually like have fun and like let go of all of your stresses. Cause the world is really terrible and we like absolutely need this. So that's just, that's just how I feel. It's like a kind of one, two punch. And I'm like, so thankful for it, to be honest. Yeah. Hopefully we're getting, uh, I don't want to say totally away from what I'm going to call clonopin core music, but it just, that really feels <laughs> like the definitive sound of the mid to late 2000s you know just that kind of gurgling under vocal gurgling under music obviously like Billie Eilish is like the Yale of this right. but there's so much beneath her that is not as interesting or not as invigorating um I, I what I like most about this 
uh, Beyonce album is. I like any moment of hers, and I always bring up Blow from her self-titled, which is one of my favorite songs of hers. I love any Beyonce moment that reminds me. She is also one of the most dynamic Prince collaborators who ever lived. When you watch that performance when she, uh, at the Grammys in 2004 with Prince, I thought that was definitive for her in a couple ways. One, it's just awesome to see her quote unquote, keep up with Prince in terms of just star power, whatever. But it, you realized in that moment, those billboards deserve to be the same size. Like Prince and Beyonce together. Like I didn't think one, you know, Prince was towering over her. They seemed like absolute contemporaries when she was that young. And for her to, on this album, bring all the layers to dance that he does, um, I think is just so fitting for her and so exciting to hear. And I don't know actually who else would give that to us, even though I didn't expect to get it from her. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was there like most of the album, I can like, you know, hear the Prince influences, but especially on like tracks like Alien Superstar mm -hmm. and uh, Pure Honey, like especially that one, which has a very clear kind of <laughs> sample in the chorus, but it's just, you know, it's, it's so evident and it's so, you know, I think what I'm someone who like loves Prince, like he's like my favorite artist of all time. And like the thing that I loved about him is that he was not afraid to experiment, like bounce between different genres, but also kind of show like their connections and how like, you know, these things can be woven in together to tell like a really great story. And she's doing like, the exact same kind of thing as well, you know, and saying like, there's like a legacy here, there's history here. And even though these things might seem really kind of disparate. And even if like my career is maybe more rooted in R&B, like this is also a part of who I am because that's like kind of the history of this music as well. So yeah, like she, it's, it's funny that she hasn't necessarily like created a project that kind of screams until now, but then you hear it and you're like, absolutely. Like it's, it's so clear. It's so okay. clear. The Prince was really what I was feeling and really just like, I mean, like I have a Batman and Prince tattoo on my arm because like this is my favorite Prince album, but it's like, I love just you listen to an album and it like, it veers from all sorts of like cacophonous sounds and it's like, it gives you so much. I mean, it reminds me of like, I don't know, like I was so into musicology in high school because uh, oh, sure. like that album is just like so interesting to me. And it's like it's dance. It's R&B. It's like it's giving you so much. And I love that the legacy, the, you know, the the history lesson like she's giving with this album, too, of like um, house, dance, EDM, you know, it's like it's funk. It's like it's all there. It's all these historically like black genres too and what i love about it as well is that you know like just dedication to her uncle johnny um who died of complications from hiv um for this album and i was just thinking that like you know like especially as like a gay man who goes out and like listens to dance music and like you know like reveres like the pop divas etc everyone who's always sort of done it you know it's like there's always like a discussion about you know like a Madonna, you know, like a Kylie, you know, or like we have Abba and shit like that. And it's just sort of like the people who were black and doing that seemed very much in like the distant past. I mean, and they're gone too, you know, a lot of them like mm -hmm. Donna, like um, Sylvester, Sylvester, <laughs> like Prince, like they're gone. You know, we only really have like Tina still like alive, like off in Zurich or wherever that wherever that bitch is. You know, like she's up in Princess <laughs> Peach's castle. Okay, she does not. She is not returning. Um, it was great to have Beyonce do this as a um, 
I think Questlove like tweeted that she's, you know, she is event artist, you know? Like someone was like, you know, obviously, you know, like um, I'm a big Charlie XCX fan and she had had the show me love sample. Um, but then when Beyonce did it, it was like, you know, like it's she's an event artist. And Beyonce releasing music like this means that the music and the and it going to like number one means it's going to shift the music industry because the music industry will know that this music is sellable again and it's popular and we will get more of it. Yes. Ah, uh, I love that. That was like a sermon. I love it. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, she is, she's known for, you know, changing the game with that digital drop. Right. So she's known for like, you know, kind of pushing things forward. And um, even if she's not necessarily the first person to do it, she is the one who can kind of show the ways in which it can be done. So it's, I don't know, exciting because I, I mean, maybe I'm just like getting old, like I'm 34 now. So, but I feel like I listen to a lot of like contemporary music and I'm just like, there's no excitement here, right? There's no vitality, there's no energy. Um, and so, you know, her coming back with this kind of event music, as you said, is sort of like, okay, this is how you can do it. Like, this is how it can be done. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see what other people will maybe do as well in, you know, response to her releasing an album like this, kind of giving other artists the permission in some ways to like, you know, just, be a little bit more experimental and hopefully, you know, not just make music that fits within the algorithm that like, you know, works perfectly for playlists that will get to the top of Spotify, but actually like has something to say. And that gets people really like pumped and motivated. Not that um, she is accepting all these offers, but why did it take until now and this album for me to hear Grace Jones doing this shit again? You know what I mean? Like I I'm listening to this album, that vocal comes on. I'm like, finally, what? what? I, you can still see Grace Jones out there live in the world. I'm glad that like, you know, there's a lot of sampling in this album, of course, as it's, you know, a classic disco record in certain ways. So it's going to have Donna Summer in it in addition to a lot of other names. But to actually hear Grace Jones in person, it's like this woman is still here and she is still, you know, like art walking down the street we right. need to be using her <laughs> yes, absolutely. well i mean grace is kind of known for being a little uh she doesn't like a lot of <laughs> contemporary yeah. artists she's prickly yeah, she's not a fan not a stan did it yeah. didn't she no, say gaga no. didn't have a soul <laughs> I was surprised. I didn't That's why we I, like her. Come I know. On. Come yeah. on. And listen, and I know that bitch does not have a soul because I saw the Chromatica Ball in Paris, which was fantastic. But there are pyrotechnics in that show. And um, there was a heat wave in Europe. And this bitch tried to kill us. She was <laughs> frying us to the, the pyrotechnics kept going off throughout the entire concert. And like at a certain point, like if people are tweeting about it now too, it's like a meme. Like you were ducking down, you were like, My eyebrows are about to go off. She wanted us dead. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um what yelling red one <laughs> as you go up in flames. <laughs> <laughs> what I do want to say about the sampling on the album is obviously, you know, like um sampling, you know, is like you know, an art at this point, you know, um, and real, some people do it well, some people do not do it well, you know, um, and you can tell the difference when a song comes out and you're like, oh, it's like, it's like everyone will like, you know, like every sweetie song is a sample, by the way, you know, and it's, you'll be like, okay, this is cute, but like, there's a difference when it's like an album like this, where it's like, it's not just a sample in that, okay, here's the beat from this song that you already know, and I'm singing over it or I'm rapping over it. This is samples in like 
the chord from this one song is in this part of the song to take you somewhere else. And it's what I love about this album is, and I can't wait for my vinyl to arrive to listen to it, but it doesn't just feel like it's giving us that music that we hadn't heard before and hearkening back to it. What it feels like is like if a DJ put this on start to finish in the club, it feels crafted like a great DJ set. It feels like mm-hmm. it's there's original new music in it, but there's like confessions also, on a dance floor. Yes, yeah, you know, there's original mm-hmm. new music in it, but it's like here's this Donna sample, like to turn the club up. You know, like here's this Prince moment here. You know, like it's it's beautiful, and it feels like a whole night out. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I would compare that to I would compare that to um, like like Missy Elliott, for example, who like mm. all of her music has some sample in it. It's like the difference you're talking about is the difference between like the Heart of Glass sample and Work It. And this is just the song that came to mind: "Beautiful Girls" by Sean Kingston. Where it's just, <laughs> uh, is, wait, is that "Stand by Me"? What's the yeah? Yeah, where, and he's just like speaking over it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's the effort, right? It's the effort. It's yeah. like if you're letting the the previous song do all the work and then you just kind of like sprinkle a little bit of something new on it versus like actually like having something to say right and like you know making something new out of it which is like really exciting i mean i think of it even like with um uh gosh with like alien superstar on this album right and she samples yeah i love it it's like one of my favorite on the album and she you know samples um uh, right said Fred, right? And and Drake mm. just had like a song very recently, also, you know, sampling that as well. And that was a song that, you know, I mean, it wasn't like terrible, but it was like very obvious, like this is the sample, this is the connection, you know, and like, is this sample kind of doing all the heavy lifting for this? Or, um, you know, can you kind of take the element of that previous song into something? Because like, that chorus she has on Alien Superstar that is new and that's beautiful. Right. And that's different. And that's not the same thing as like, you know, I'm too sexy for my whatever. So yeah. No, I love an interpolation too. You know, like the moment where she does the, like um, from Tina Marie's Ooh La La, like that is beautiful. And it's, it's also weird because it's like, she samples that song on two different tracks. uh, But it sounds completely different in the way it's used on both tracks too. Tina Marie, I just she's come up a few times on Keep It before. I think namely because didn't J Lo do that Motown tribute at the Grammys once, and part of it was she did Tina Marie. And anyway, that tribute did not go over, you know, astoundingly well. But <laughs> Tina Marie, among like music that is now considered like old, that is like it holds up so well. It's the best dance music. She has a song called Behind the Groove that I would say is one of my favorites of hers. Um, uh, her big hits, which are like Square Biz and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Lover Girl, so good. Uh, she was the Rick James protege, if people don't know who she is. She was called the Ivory Queen of Soul. Um, anyway, got to get into her music. And I'm, I'm, I'm psyched to see uh, Beyonce sample her. Were there other samples on this album you were particular fans of? Um, I loved the Mr. Finger sample, which you can kind of hear in um, Pure Honey, just from like a kind of Chicago house standpoint. Like for me, that was really exciting as well. So um, that song in general, I really loved because it just had like 
and I think it probably like the most um, kind of samples out of like any of the others. And it sort of was incorporating kind of like two um, different songs to kind of uh, create one song. So um, yeah, that was probably like one of like my personal favorites out of like all of them, just because um, it, it seemed like it was almost like that was sort of like the story that she was really trying to tell and like kind of taking it back to, um, you know, this kind of early house, like mid eighties, Chicago warehouse, like black queer community. And so I thought that that was just like a really nice to to hear for for me at least. So my favorite track is still cozy, even after the whole weekend. And like Honey Dijon's um production audit, um, and then you know, like um Dave Giles um and Green Velvet, like I like people all from the Chicago like scene. Like I fucking love that song. And my favorite sample on that is um like from the ad libs from like T.S. Madison's Bitch on Black video. Just like, just like underscoring it. I'm just like, it's re- it like really like delivers for me. No, th- uh, this is one of the few albums I can think of that needs like a bibliography. It's so intense. The, the, the amount of references and it's all like extremely intentional. You know, it's not just, I, I don't know. They happen upon this sample and it, it sounds good. It's like every sample means something. It's a quote unquote Easter egg, you know? Um, it's, uh, if it weren't just fun dance movie music, I would consider it diabolical. How deep it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I also just love like um, the still pimping sample that opens it up too. you know, um, from Memphis rapper, you know, uh, Princess Loco. It is um, great. And I also love that. I love the people who noticed that sample and had to let you know that they noticed that sample because the album dropped and Charlie Poof tweeted. It was like, Damn, shout out to that still pimping sample that opens up Beyonce's album. I was like, you better stand, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's just like a, I love your bibliography comment, Louis, because it really just feels like a feast for like music lovers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, yeah. should we get, should we get into the Diane Warren of it all? Since we've all, since she's come, I mean, you, I know you wanted to save this for your keep it. No, we'll talk Diane about Warren, it. We'll talk about okay. it. Uh, she obviously one of the most preeminent songwriters of our time. Uh, uh, how many Oscars has she been nominated for? One hundred and fifty thousand, I believe. How many um, has she won? That's a lower number. That's <laughs> in the zero range. But she tweeted, "How can a song have twenty four songwriters?" And then with a eye roll emoji. Now. <laughs> She knew what she was doing. She knew she was going to get smoked for that, I assume. And people rightfully said to her, you know, Diane, you know how the music industry works. Please stop. I do want to say also, I do feel people are largely undereducated about how much music Diane Warren has written. So I wanted to almost defend her legacy, even though it doesn't need defending. But... um, she she actually did figure it out for herself, though, because she realized, oh, um, uh, tons of the songwriters on here are just the original artists of samples getting credit. You know, like like the right said Fred is all listed in the credits, for example. But I mean, did she figure it out or, or was it like or was it dream? told to her? That's probably true. I mean, I mean the dream responded to her. The dream <laughs> literally responded. And then he was like, come on, Diane. And then the dream responded. And then she became a full white woman and was like, well, you don't have to be mean. And oh, I'm no. like, I'm oh, like no. come on, girl. You were dragging his track. Do they have to track. be nice? Yeah. <laughs> you were dragging his track. And I'm like, listen, she has written for icons, you know? Um, the Vivian. Um, <laughs> Rita Ora. Uh, <laughs> I'm Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
I'm kidding. Listen, I love Diane Warren's music, obviously. Um, she's even, it's, it was even shadier because she has written for Beyonce. You know, yeah. I mean, granted, that song is um, I Was Here. But oh, I was I, I was gonna say I assume it's not a single. I, but, yeah. <laughs> I was here from four. Um, her, yeah. her her music, her song about the globe. I don't know. One of my least favorite Beyonce songs. I'll just be honest. Even before, like, just all this controversy wasn't my favorite. That's for sure. So <laughs> on the record. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, D- Diane Warren got the smoke and it was funny. It was funny seeing an old school, um, beehive pile on. Yeah, no, you're right. It was quaint actually. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, it was less murky, obviously, than the, than the Khalees of it all. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. because, I, you know, like for those who don't know, like Khalees's milkshake was sampled, um, and she's the performer of that song but you know like not credited as you know like songwriter composer or producer uh, just for that song and the album in general because um you know Khalees has talked openly before about you know like conflicts with pharrell and the neptunes have led to them owning her songs and her not and you know not having mu- money from them um which is why I guess she shifted into becoming a fantastic chef. I have had her arepas at a pop-up in um, Koreatown once, and they were fucking fantastic. But um, the only thing I want to say about the Khalees of it all is that we, we've we talked before on this podcast a lot about how, like, the music industry is fucked like a lot of people over, you know, um, there's you know like pebbles there's diddy you know and pharrell i guess following in that long tradition um i think that we can acknowledge like how amazing Khalees is and be like um you have legitimate gripes with this without attacking her i'm like i can love the album and not get into the mess of it all because Khalees is fantastic i mean talking about dance music DJs will still throw on 4th of July on the dance floor, and I, like, Mm. turn all the way up. Well, actually, as of the recording of this episode, uh, the Khalees sample uh, is completely removed from streaming sites. Uh, So I guess the conversation's over, unless you have the vinyls and the CDs like I do. Oh, I, I remember I w- I'm in my hometown right now, so this memory is coming back to me fresher. There was the summer of 2006, I believe. I was home from college, and Bossy had come out, ex- except I didn't. I, it was an iTunes planet at the time, and I was very nervous about, you know, I didn't have any money in college, so I didn't want to spend money on songs. I would literally, I'm not kidding, bored in my Chicago suburb, drive around in my mom's car waiting for Bossy to come on. It was sad. <laughs> it was really sad. <laughs> That's understandable, though. I mean, that's how we used to listen to music back in the day, right? You just waited right. for it to happen, and then you would get it, and kind <laughs> of record it in that way. I do love how that song opens up with her being like, just so you know, I was the first one to scream on the track. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's like she's talking about her own career. Yeah. yeah. She's like, I'm referencing Caught Out There. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, any lasting thoughts on this album? There's so much more we could talk about, but I'm just like, it's there's Have we this, said the words Virgo's groove. That's my favorite song. I mean, uh, that is a vibe. That is just if you that entire song feels like I'm listening to the entirety of Air's Moon Safari, like within just like six minutes. It's so good. Uh, and it almost, and it's also like 
and, and again, it's a it's like a light groove too. In addition to being so, it's like you can put it on next to the pool in Palm Springs, also, which is yeah. sort of important for me in a dance record. Like there should be a sort of like <laughs> breathe out moment, you know? Yeah, plastic sofas, like a great. I love that song too. The vocal me runs too. on that are fantastic, but it's a good like intermission, like breathe on the dance floor moment, right. and then Virgo's groove gets you right back up there, and then the last half of that out. It is. It is wild to actually have a recent sort of mainstream like um, pop album that um, the last half of it is like almost stronger than the first half. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's truly no skips for me. So and that last half is just I feel like that's kind of like, you know, some of her most experimental stuff on the record. So um, mm. all up in my mind. Yeah. All up right? in my mind exactly. is one of her most <laughs> like surprising turns for like a Beyonce track. Like that's giving PC music yes. and it's so fucking good. And also America has a problem. It's just like a really good song. And it's like, love seeing people mash it up with like old, like Detroit, like eighties, nineties, like dance videos because it, it fits perfectly. It has that Latin kind of freestyle sort of, you know, from like the, like, let the music play. Like that kind yeah, of, kind of that, vibe to it. And I love when like our, it reminds me of, like, she does like a little rap on it too. And I love when like when the old like early 90s like R&B divas would like be singing on a track and then all of a sudden start rapping like Mariah on Prisoner. <laughs> That's a flashback. <laughs> I fucking love that song. <laughs> I saw a tweet that uh, uh, made me think, which is, you know, a lot of these rappers are lucky that Beyonce busies herself singing most of the time. Because, man, when she raps, it's so... Uh, uh, here I come. I'm sounding like a, a 90s Rolling Stone critic or something, but dynamic. Like, she goes <laughs> goes hard, in quotes. What a pleasure every time she raps. She has a good melodic flow. It's like she's got energy to it. She's got, especially like nowadays where people kind of have that sort of ASMR kind of mumbly rap thing going on. It's like she's actually, it feels, it's like nostalgic in some way that she like, you know, kind of just like rides the beat. So yeah. if she wanted to, she would be really good. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> releasing a rap album. I mean, and listen, also she's done it again in that we're talking about this album this week, but also like the visuals aren't even out yet. So like, we're going to be talking about it again. And then also there's there's two more acts, okay? I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it is long and we don't know when they're coming. It's like, she's, she's Tom Stoppard now, you know? There's, there's, <laughs> a, there's, there's more to come. It's like, this album ends and it's like, when you go see a Marvel movie, it's like, the screen goes black and the title card says, Beyonce will return. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. so, well, until uh, then. Until yeah. then. Until that, I mean, also Electric Lasting, I just want to say the album, like the Johnny stuff really did get to me. And like, I'm glad she dedicated that. Um, and it's just like, there's always been this sort of thing about like people saying like that Beyonce doesn't like acknowledge like her gay fans the way the other people do. But I'm like, just sort of have to look for it. And it's been going around online, like her glad speech that she gave about Johnny too. And just this dedication. Like, I don't know. I just thought it was beautiful. Uh, yeah. And it had me. Also, I just it's nice that she gave us a Joanne album that we like. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, no, not easy to do. Not uh, all the other girls have that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, to their credit. Um, yes. <laughs> I had to, no, it had me calling my grandmother and asking about 
for like photos of my uncle Bill who lived in that era, like the nineties in Chicago and died in the same way. Um, because I was like, I just wanted to like feel that connection again that I was feeling from the music. So my favorite Beyonce album, uh, at the moment and it really feels like almost like the the queer lemonade for her like queer fan mm. base so yeah thank Absolutely. you for thank you for joining us Britt. thank you for having me this is a lot of fun i'm really excited to talk about beyonce more because i feel like most people i know they like her but do they love her no <laughs> do they have you know sense of knowledge no. So, oh, sometimes yeah. you're having a conversation with people and you're like getting excited and then you see that look from them that it's like they're looking for the exit they're right. like where's <laughs> my pepper spray <laughs> this if this bitch starts naming producers i'm like i'm out of here <laughs> she's talking about samples let me go <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah uh, thank you yeah thank you up next neil patrick harris joins us to discuss his new series Uncoupled. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. You've seen him in How I Met Your Mother, Gone Girl, A Series of Unfortunate Events, The Matrix Resurrections, and now in Netflix's new series, Uncoupled, we are thrilled to welcome to keep it the number one most famous gay man in the world, actually. We decided this in the intro. Uh, The legendary Neil Patrick Harris. What's up? Hi. How are you? Nice to see you. It's nice to see you Man, too. I, I can't even decide what I would call your primary credit at this point. Like, I like I I still want to say like award show host, but obviously you're also a Tony winner. You've got How I Met Your Mother is still lingering there. What feels like your signature moment? Do you feel you've had a signature moment? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think probably most people 
I don't know. Probably How I Met Your Mother would be the main one. I mean, I, the longest period of time. That was nine seasons. And each season was was one year between them because it was a CBS show. So like almost a decade on that. But people will still come up and say like, hey, Doogie, I loved you in Series of Unfortunate Events. So I, I feel like that one may have, <laughs> may have had, left, a, left more of an indelible mark. But um, I don't know. Now that on Couples Happening, maybe, maybe the side of my, my bare ass about to get Botoxed uh, may be more indelible. <laughs> in I think it's just the name. I think it's just the name, the yeah. moniker Doogie Hauser that has endured. Because I feel like it became such a moment culturally mm. that people who have never seen it know that you're Doogie Hauser, though. That's true. That is That's true. Also true. Strange. Yeah, 20-year-olds will say, aren't you that guy from Doogie Hauser? I'm like, dude, the, the, the show isn't even on Netflix or anything. It's anymore. not streaming it's at not all. Streaming. I have... I've not seen an episode of this show in decades. I don't even think I remember anything about it. I do know, I guess, there's a spinoff on Disney. Yeah, right. Yes. there is. Written by one of the High Might Your Mother writers, Courtney Kang. Yeah. But we had Kat Dennings on this show once, and nice. she talked about how ever since she was on Two Broke Girls, like, she's now a loud person. Did doing a multicam for that long transform how you communicate? It feels like it would just change what you think how loud you need to be in order for an audience to hear you? Oh, that's a very interesting question. It didn't, I don't know that it made me any louder. I think it made me um, maybe a little more overt or at least comfortable and confident in, in my own comedic ideas and choices as a performer. And I say that unique to me and our show because Kat was on a multi-camera show that was live in front of a studio audience. Right. So I do yeah. think you need to be a bit louder in that scenario because you're talking over actual laughs and there's like a group vibe of a crowd of people who are, uh, you know, 12 feet above you that are, you know, highly caffeinated being told to like really give it. And so that probably changes the dynamic. We were a multi-camera show with a laugh track because there were so many little scenes that flashed back and forward in Ted and then there were all these, it was, there was three times as many scenes in the script for that, our show than say uh, a two broke girls. So we were just, I was just imagining where the laughs would come. I was trying to get the camera guys to laugh because that was always fun. Uh, that, then I felt like, okay, I, th I think where I'm going is, is in the right direction, but I would, I would know from the table read when we all sat around with scripts first time, I would know that they laughed twice at this line, right? And so when I would be, when we were recording it, I would definitely tee it up and say half the line and then pause because I know they're going to add a laugh. And then I would say the <laughs> second half of the line. And then, and then I wait again because I knew they are going to get a big laugh. So I, I actually got to weirdly kind of help orchestrate the laughs on that show. So I guess the technician in me was happy about nine years of that kind of work. Well, here's a question. You learned that from that sitcom. You were on Doogie for four years. Did you know you were funny as a kid? Like, did you know, like, watch being on the show where you like, I am being funny. I am learning the skill of being a good 
comedic television actor or were you just like, I'm a kid and I'm like doing a job? Well, I've always related to adults really well when I was younger and my parents, Ron and Sheila, who are still alive and, and likely binging this podcast at 76 years old in Albuquerque, they uh, <laughs> talked to us always like we were people people and not little kid people. So we always enjoyed their sense of humor because sometimes I feel like adults talk to kids as if they don't get jokes. And, but in point of fact, we listened to a lot of Smothers Brothers albums and a lot of Bill Cosby comedy. He had LPs and his long form like dentist stuff. So we, we all had a good sense of humor. Doogie was kind of a dramedy. It was in Wondercade. No, sorry, that's a different chapter. Wonder Years, Fred Savage. And, and, and it was filmed single camera, not multiple cameras in front of an audience at all. It was a Stephen Boschko show, what we were doing. So that was, the comedy was really subtle at best. The guy who played Vinny, Max Casella, was my sort of funny sidekick. So Doogie was sort of the nucleus center of that. And while I appreciated what, what comedy uh, timings would be, I wasn't really the one to deliver the punchline so often on that show. Mm. Also, speaking of being into things like Smothers Brothers albums, et cetera, you've, your interests have always struck me as a bit like old fashioned, like you have the the magic part of your personality. You, I associate you with loving game shows, which I'm also obsessed with. Totally. Have you always felt like a secret little grown up growing up? Like, were you somebody who didn't relate to other people your age because you had weirder interests than they did? And how do you think that's benefited you? Uh, you know, no, in your career? Just, and do I you always, have those interests? though? I always liked performing. I always like was drawn to anything that was kind of showy. I grew up in a small ski resort town in the middle of New Mexico. So it was mostly sort of football centric and farming. There wasn't a lot of outlets for performance. So anytime I would go to a Six Flags Middle America, yes, I liked the roller coasters, but I was really intrigued by sort of the, 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 the show with the, like the, the six or eight 20 something dancer uh, singers that would sort of an Americana review. And then there'd be like all these costume changes and the set would move around. I would love that kind of stuff. And I would, I loved pep rallies and I loved the church choir. And I was just kind of always looking for outlets. I loved when the, when the state fair would come into town once a year into Albuquerque and we'd go up to Albuquerque, the big city. And it was so great to, to see the pitch men at the carnivals trying to say to to say whatever is necessary in a fast pattern to get people to drop a dollar to come inside to see the two-headed lady. Like I always found that kind that style of pitchman performance to be kind of great. It was similar, I think, to game show hosts of the 80s, you know? Uh, oh sure. Because there were a lot, that was a lot of there were fewer channels on TV and it was really trying to keep the moth to the flame. <laughs> by look over here and here's tell them what they've won and here's the next round and here's how it goes and you're going to be first john what's your choice and i always thought it was both um exciting to watch kind of like an opiate because they were so enthusiastic not overly so like freakish but but they were confident but it was also very succinct and i like 
vocabulary, and I like being able to not to use the specific words. And I say that because I think that speaks to the old timey stuff. I love vaudevillian things. I love good, good uh, like classic clown acts like Buster Keaton that you can see that it's well thought through and plays to multiple levels to multiple demographics. Which is interesting, as I'm saying that, I guess that's a through line for me, is the notion of multiplicity within performance. I love Jim Henson and and Walt Disney are probably my two idols growing up. And I think in large part because they were creating content designed for more than one person to watch simultaneously, which I always just found kind of fascinating. Kids and adults can watch them, appreciate them in different ways. And I think you could say the same for a Charlie Chaplin uh, or a Buster Keaton or a P.T. Barnum. Like P.T. Barnum was trying to get everyone to come and see this thing. But it was also like a wink and a nod because if you stuck around long enough, you'd get to see, you know, dancers showing their tits uh, in behind this curtain. So there was kind of two things happening simultaneously. You would fit right in in the Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, say, say, say video. That's where you belong. (laughs) Hawking a tonic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I actually find it hard to believe you're not in the old one with uh, that Steven Spielberg directed where like every celebrity pops up. Which one? Which one is that, Lewis? Oh, li- a Liberian girl. Liberian girl ends with my like it's the Liberian girl music video is random celebrities of that time are on set, uh, literally of all ages too. Like, but on set, it does feel like you were for, there, wait, yeah. waiting for Michael Jackson, and then uh, like Steven Spielberg's there too, because like I think he directed wow. it, and it's like then Michael Jackson like descends from the sky like a director's chair, and it's like <laughs> that's a wrap. And the video is just shooting everyone walking around looking for Michael. It's baffling. <laughs> I went to Neverland once. Uh, and Michael wasn't wow. there, but it was it was a big benefit. And apparently he might have been there, but in disguise. And it and I got to wander and see all kinds of things. I never really ever met him, but I he loved magic and I loved magic and he loved Disney theme parts, as did I. So I felt weird kinship and connection with the part of Michael Jackson that sort of loved the entertainment of it all. Mm. What did you, do you have any lasting memories from walking around at Neverland? Is there like a, you know, two. A, an image burned in your brain? Two, and I don't know, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to know if my images are, were based on the allegations that were sort of at that time pending, I think. So this was like pre all of like the, the, the downfall of Michael. Uh, and the legal stuff. But that was, I think, happening. So there was, I think I was looking at it through a different lens. But I did sort of recognize it in the arcade that he had in sort of his main house. There were lots of amazing video games. Uh, I didn't notice there were like multiple doors and that they were all kind of locked. And I remember thinking, well, this is so interesting because I wonder who has access to which doors. I thought it was weird, not weird, but interesting in the cinema when we saw the cinema that there was a, a big movie theater and then sort of behind it and up above, almost like a mezzanine, which were two, I think, glass enclosed like rooms with beds in them. And it was all okay. glass so that you could see, like you could watch the movie, but like watch it in pajamas in bed. 
which I thought at the time was kind of, wow, that's very cool. I wonder who gets to go in there. <laughs> <After> that, <laughs> it's a little we walked around the zoo at Neverland. There was a zoo there. And I found that a little bit. Was Bubbles still trapped there? We did, oh, that's a good question. I don't think I saw Bubbles. It was more uh, lions and like wild animals, which I thought was just kind of a drag for them because they didn't, it didn't feel like they had giant um, acreage with which to roam around. How we went to the giraffe enclosure, which was outside, and I guess the giraffe sort of walked up to us. This is my only weird Neverland story. And so we picked some leaves or something and this beautiful giraffe comes and i hold my arm up to offer the leaves and it leans down and it takes in this big giraffe tongue and then it looks at me up close with its eyes and tears it just shoot out of its eyes straight down like <laughs> what? a burst of tears and then it walks away. And my friend Emma, who was with me, who could vouch for the story, we were both jaws to the ground. Like, was that a sign? Was that just a giraffe saying, things have happened here? <laughs> it wasn't you know, that might have been Michael. That might have been yeah, Michael. It wasn't, it wasn't like a drippy eye. It was a, a look at my face and I'm tearing, I'm <sighs> sending tears and then I'm walking away. It was a very Mike SOS from a giraffe. Well, Oh my God! Uh, you should you should have had Jack Hanna in there that moment. Right. There should have uh, been a, a a freedom trail for that giraffe to walk out on. Well, speaking of tears, let's talk about uncoupled. Do you like that segue? <laughs> nice. Bro, uh, <laughs> speaking of the Smothers Brothers, yeah. Here we go. Um, I mean, you, you were talking before, you know, about um, you know, multiple things going on in a performance, and I think what people are really loving about this is. Aside from people who've seen you, you know, on stage, um, in theater, uh, this is like a new Neil for people. And it's even a new Neil for people who've seen you on stage. I feel like, one, you're getting to play, you know, like a, everyone's calling it like a gay Carrie Bradshaw. And two, nice. you're, you're being like very emotionally open and dramatic i think in a way that we've never gotten to see you before mm. so like how does that how did it feel doing that and also how does it feel with the response to it well i can't really comment to the response to it because i'm i i don't know i mean you've gotten texts you've gotten texts for I mean, sure from my like friends and people who've seen it i honestly ira i have always I've always been extra reticent and almost to to my own detriment to take praise for something that is currently happening with anything more than in like an informational way. And I don't know. I mean, you can ask Jeffrey Richman, who's who's our boss. I mean, he he will come up and say the most glowing, glorious things about dailies about. Oh, you think you're going to that? What all your work on episode two, Neil? And I'm just thinking, all, <laughs> all, all, right, all, right, no, you're saying that because you're the producer of the show, and you're what else are you supposed to say? I don't think he feels the opposite necessarily, but I'm not so good with with accepting any kind of large scale praise. I was aware of how like the overall like was it mixed positive, mixed negative, and I I think it was like mixed positive in a way that that was helpful 
the tonal shifts within Uncoupled were the thing that I was most concerned about when mm -hmm. we were filming it because I just didn't know if people were going to want to watch a Darren Star funny Sex in the City show and then why are people so dramatic and crying or whether they wanted to watch a breakup show with actors like Tisha doing mm -hmm. really good work and Marsha Gay Harden doing really dramatic, like angry work and myself the same. And then like, pratfall. And I didn't know if they would find <laughs> that jarring. So that was always my concern. And at the end of the day, I think that weirdly that that duality hasn't necessarily been done, at least with these characters at you know, in this time in 2022, in the middle of the summer. And so I think there's not a lot of comparable content. And then I think both sides of, of what I previously said get to enjoy it for both reasons. So I should have, shouldn't have second guessed it so much because I think someone said wisely, and it might've been Jeffrey, that that is like what a relationship is. Like life is fun and funny and then you get sucker punched sometimes and you have to deal with like real issues, but then life is still fun and funny or life is shit and, and your relationship is all consuming. And then, you know, you get too drunk and you make an ass out of yourself, which is funny. So you don't, it doesn't need to be one type of show, but I certainly love, I, I certainly loved playing it. I thought it was really it was fun to be doing. It was a little bit of a magic trick to me. And I love magic, right? But I think I think it was fun to be doing a Darren Star show, the same guy that is currently doing Emily in Paris, which um, doesn't delve, you know, too deep into like the emotion of relationship. And so you think mm -hmm. it's that, and then you get like, you get to watch me give a really heartfelt emotional speech and then you think oh my gosh i was not expecting that which leaves an impression so um for me it's been it's been really fun i'm proud of everyone that's on the show like i just i keep telling people did you love brooks did you love tisha <laughs> you know i just i'm i'm a i'm a proponent of like the whole thing so yes it's been fun i love that it's bingy and i love i don't know that the timing is good right now so fingers crossed mm. I, I will say, side note, fuck Darren for us not shooting in Paris, though. Because <laughs> Well, now that, we're, now that things are going well, we're all, we're all hypothesizing what season two might be like. like. If we get a season two, which we're all, now I'm wondering, okay, they must have some algorithmic numbers. Like, was retention good? Did people watch all of them? What's the I told them no ski weekend. No yeah. ski weekend episode. I'm talking about Mykonos. That's funny that you say Mykonos. Uncoupled in Saint-Tropez. Someone said, like, Next year it's going to be Mykonos. So is it next year it's going to be P Town? Next year it's going to be Fire Island. I said, like, as long as it's warm, I'm happy. <laughs> Obviously, this role would be closer to your real life, and that you're playing a gay man who is exactly your age. There's no like um, magical realism component to the show, but it, did it still require research in any way? I heard you had to like find out like what Grinder was basically, and have it like I have it tutorialed to you. Uh, I didn't do any research. I guess I did a little bit of real estate research. Just, I, I mean, not a deep dive. Just, I, I think I paid closer attention to people who were, who were selling things on 
TV shows, million dollar listing types of people just to see kind of where the zeitgeist is as far as that goes. Gay men all know real estate agents. <laughs> True. And I know some gay real estate agents. And I was and and what I like about my friends who are real estate agents is that they're not over the top. So I didn't want Michael to be an over the top, you know, I didn't want his suit to be have a vest and a, a, a pocket square and colorful ties as a, a self-tan. I kind of wanted him to be a, a regular person that was that was able to hide behind the idea of selling something and not looking at himself and in turn getting like messier and messier while still trying to maintain the air of everything is okay -edness. Yeah, because those people are supposed to be calming clients ultimately. You know, they're not sort of like, they're not, they're not giving the P.T. Barnum-like show as you were describing Well, earlier. some do. Some are really like, over. I think you have, they're, they're, they should be good at, at kind of reading the room and reading their client and seeing if they want more information or if they want less. As far as the the app learning, <clears throat> I I did I I listen. I know that Grinder exists, but I just have never. I've always been with David, and so if I ever like created a profile on Grinder, that would be very weird. And he would be very suspicious. And if I said, no, no, honey, it's just for research, <laughs> be even more suspicious. So we just never did that. But we, we had friends who were on it. And I'm always still amused when, when someone, I mean, we've had super hot friends who were just really pretty handsome people who make their livelihood taking their shirts off. And so like having those people show me their accounts on Grindr, that's fantastic. That's like Willy Wonka because you you have literally the pick <laughs> of anyone in a 20 mile radius willing to do anything that you want. And you, can, you it, the specifics are remarkable. But yeah, I, I thought, I thought watching, I don't know. Tell me what you think about this, Ira, because some of the some of Michael's reactions to those things, like barebacking and prep and grinder, um, some of his reactions seemed to me when we were doing them a little dated, as if my, I, I kept wondering, does Michael not watch Netflix or listen to podcasts <laughs> or watch the news or know that these things exist? Right? Because. I know about Grindr. I'm going to say this. It doesn't mean that I have to be on it. And so I was a little <laughs> concerned that it would feel a little dusty in that regard, a little Golden Girls. But, well, go on. I think it works. I think it works. And I'm going to say this in the non-shadiest way possible. Okay. But if it seems like new information to Michael, a lot of it was also new information to Darren, because I feel like Michael is sort of an avatar for Darren. And Darren is a Leo, just like me. And we know Darren Star. And Darren and Michael are a little bit self-involved. And so I can see Michael not knowing what's going out in the rest of the world because it just didn't concern him. I could see his friends talking about Grindr at a party, and he's like, not listening. Because it doesn't concern him. A lot of this stuff was new to Darren. Now, that is totally accurate. Mm -hmm. But I think there's an added benefit to it, having talked to people recently, is that mm -hmm. I think his naivete towards these things 
allowed a wide swath of people who are watching to learn about it in a safe way as well. So I think you get mm-hmm. straight men and you get uh, women able to learn about Grindr in like an informational way that I think really actually helped us in the storytelling. So Yeah, when Darren makes a show, it's not, I mean, there's a lot of queer content right now, you know? And I think as queer men like Lewis and I could attest, we do like a show where you watch it and it's like, it's for us explicitly. Right. Like, it's not explaining things to the audience. Right. But this is a Darren Star show, it's on Netflix. It, it You need one to have big numbers to get even a second season on Netflix. You need everyone watching this show. And I think that there needs to be a bit of will and grace style like explaining Mm. what gayness is to people Mm. in 2022 i appreciate you saying that because that what yeah i was a little wary of that because i know that the queer community can also be quick to judge themselves and so i didn't want it to feel like we were potentially out of touch in in some of in some of the wokeness of current culture through michael's lens well, also, I, I think like straight people have certain like landmarks of gay relationships that they know and are very proud to know. Like they're always bringing up how they know what a top and a bottom is or like what a bear <laughs> is. And I think because they have those things, they think they know everything, mm. but they are a little behind. So if they're going to watch a TV show about this, there are things that are going to have to be explained to them if they're going to get it, you know, so it's just necessary. And I think, I think too, that's a really, really valid point and, and understood. I think as well a breakup show is universal and so relatable that people are looking for differences so that they can connect in both directions right that i feel like people say you know that i just went through this and i'm a straight woman and i have that same feeling so there's things you latch on to on the show that are subjective to you because you have had a similar experience and there's differences that you can learn from so you kind of get to grab it from both sides no, in a way, this show is the uh, uh, an unmarried woman of 2022, which is one of the great breakup New York stories of all oh, time. Nice. Uh, I just need to bring, I need to pr- shout out uh, Jill Clayburg, uh, one of the great <laughs> un- un- undersung oh, actresses as of late, but she was great in the 70s and 80s. Oh, Wouldn't be a week on Keep It if Lewis wasn't shouting out Jill Clayburg. I mean, come on now. <laughs> was, wasn't she um, the mother of Lily Rob? Weird. Wasn't she in that weird? Who was the actress? It might be Jill Clayburg who was in. Mm. That weird. Not starting over with Burt Reynolds. No, it or, was uh, more uh, contemporary. Uh, she Run? was older, and she was a, a drug addict in that movie with. Uh, oh God, this is going to be all edited out. The movie with Jennifer Connelly. Oh, uh, uh, are you talking about Ellen Burstyn? Yeah, that's in, what I'm thinking. Um, uh, Requiem oh. for a Dream. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Jill Clayburg. Requiem Burstyn. for a Dream. Yes. No, Jill Clayburg said- played <laughs> Kristen Wiig's mom in Bridesmaids. That was the last thing she did before she died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was in Love and Other Drugs, though. Nice. Nice. Right. Yes. Yeah. You guys yeah. follow. Nice. You Thank you for chill. pulling that together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess one last question I want to ask is. Everyone's been talking, you know, about the concept of, you know, um, playing like someone going through a breakup and like having to rediscover that life and how it is to play that. Uh, And I think you talked a lot about that in interviews. But what I'm interested in is, you know, you publicly came out, obviously, in 2006 and people um, in that era where, you know, like if you were coming out as gay, you 
You did it in People magazine. Um, <laughs> but playing the things of like Michael, like discover, like going to a gay bar again, you know, etc. Um, what was it like being in this show and I guess revisiting your gay youth, which would be Michael's gay youth? Because what was your New York life like before David, before you came out? I didn't come out till mm, very late. Um, and I think it was mostly because I lived in Los Angeles and had worked on television. And so I felt very still in my own body. Like I was used to like hitting a mark and standing still so that they could do a wide shot and then a close up and they didn't have to work super hard. And so I did that for four years. And when I was done, I didn't really know how to move my body. And so I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable in my skin. And I certainly in the nineties wasn't about to go like, see, like see what the dating scene is like, because I think within that initial, those initial first steps, you, you seek a little anonymity. So like, you're not sure if you want to, if you want to grind up against somebody or like wait to be grinded up against with on the dance floor, if you're going to wear something loud and like se or, or sexual or wear something conservative. So there's a lot of unknowns, but being a, a television actor going to rage and like standing in the corner at the nineties, that, that was that would have certainly been <laughs> fodder for lots of people to whisper in the ears of others. And back then there weren't as many examples of representation. So I just never really went out. I had a great group of friends. I lived in Studio City and I hung out with them a lot. And I was always kind of the fun Barney Stinson sidekick friend. Um, and then when I went to San Diego to do Rent, the second national tour of Rent, that's when that's when I got to be more full-bodied because I had to move around more. That's when I got to go to the East Village and get my hair dyed from Patricia Fields and get a blonde haircut and put fingernail polish on. So I got to queer myself up a little bit in my visage. And that's when I started feeling like, oh, oh, New York is the shit. Like here, <laughs> people are kind of sexy just by design, but they're not interested in what anyone else is really doing. And there's all kinds of places that are open super late that you can walk to, that you could just take a subway to. So it allowed some anonymity to just kind of explore and see what things I thought w w was sexy. That said, I started, once I started dating people, I just kind of, I dated them for a while. I wasn't good at the we're fooling around, but so that you know, I'm also fooling around with four other people and saying the same to them. I felt disingenuous telling person one that I wasn't seeing anyone else if I was. So I wound up just sort of dating one guy until it ran its course. And then that became apparently like really obvious. And so then we just decided to go our separate ways, but sort of remained friends. And I did that four or five times and then, and then started dating David. So it wasn't a super single experience. I guess when I was younger, I would go out in LA, but, but to straightish clubs, but like trendy Hollywood <laughs> clubs, like <laughs> Roxbury and, and um, the Viper room and places like that. So it, and it was all kinds of people, like it, I didn't feel like there was a, a different partying 
world that I wasn't participating in. Uh, but I just, I didn't have any game at all. So I would just kind of hang with my, my little cluster of friends and show off my, my fake ID and, you know, drink a lot of vodka and cranberries giveaway and then uh <laughs> and then go home tipsy <laughs> i don't know I, yeah i feel like trendy clubs were a yeah. good way to like if you were sort of anonymous as a gay person like you wouldn't be called out for going there even when i hear stories of like old studio 54 it's like going there didn't mean you were gay really because everybody wanted to go there so yeah, but it I, could mean i feel you like don't yeah, you feel you know. like those stories are singular to new york though i don't feel like that's yeah, the like, same vibe in la in LA, it was totally. very much, at least in that time, a if you're going to West Hollywood, you're ve- like, what's up with that? It was LA was a very, yeah. but back then LA was like, are you a movie person or a TV person? You have to decide now, are you doing pilot season or are you going to be a mo- an independent movie person? Like that was, you had to make these dis- decisions. It, uh, I think, I think New York, by design is more fluid. Yeah. And I think it was also probably pre the sort of like, you know, the, the David Cooley, Lisa Vanderpumpification of WeHo. We're also like the Abbey is famous enough that everyone goes here. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. if you're gay. The Abbey was a place that I knew was like a real gay moment. Like if you went to the Abbey, it was because you were gay or at least like dabbling. There was a place in the valley called Oil Can Harry's. Oh, I love that bar. I we, miss it so much. Yeah, we used to love it. Is it not there it anymore? Was, it, was it, it recently only closed down. Yeah. No. So when I was a kid, I would drive past that to go to my agents. <laughs> and I would, I, it was like the, the Death Star. Like, I always wondered like, <laughs> what is this oil can Harry's and what goes on in there. And I was very curious and only went, gosh, five or six years ago for the first time. And it was like a country bar at that time. There were a bunch of people in like right. Western wear, mm-hmm. which I wasn't expecting. But oil can seemed like, like very sexual to me. It felt lubricated. So oil can Harry's just <laughs> like it was a lot. It was like a wet. Room it's a very old school gay bar name, like manhole or something. Yeah, exactly. That, that, again, that, that a straight person would name. Yeah, yeah you know. <laughs> but uh, no, but it was like the last bar where you would go to it, and definitely you would hear "Turn the Beat Around" by Vicky Sue Robinson or whatever. Got Hello. to be real or something, you know. So I totally missed that bar. I just can I tell you what is exciting about Uncoupled is I I love that at forty nine, I'm able to talk about like contemporary gay dating and culture a little bit in a sort of safe-ish Darren Star kind of way. But I'm just so proud of the generations below mine, right? The the, the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-olds, because of their innate fluidity and inclusivity and positivity about it all. Like the fact that so many straight people go to gay clubs to dance now because they know how fun it is and that there's not a lot of um, aggression is such a great, like that was not the case when I was dancing in the twenties, it meant something different. And when I talk to kids now who say that if their friend was gay, that would obviously not bother them. But if their gay friend wanted to give them a blow job and, and then they would say, fine, they wouldn't think that it meant anything if that's what your, the friend really wanted. 
And I said, that wouldn't, you wouldn't then go around and think, oh my gosh, I got a blowjob from a guy. Does that mean I'm gay? Does that mean I'm gay? And he was like, no, that like, it might be my friend. I wouldn't care. I was like, wow, that's such a different time. And I love that. I think, it, I think it's the tipping point has happened. You have podcasts like these, you have TV shows like Pose, like Uncoupled now, where there's so many examples of different kinds of this, of this kind of inclusivity that given the political conversations that are currently happening in, a, in this political cycle, an election cycle, I just don't feel like there's too many ways to step too far backwards. And I think that's a really, it's like a lovely time. With 11-year-old kids, it's easy. It's easy to convey emotion on the show because I live emotion with my kids. So I don't know. I'm, I'm really, I'm proud of it all. Oh, well, thank you, Neil. I don't want you to think our podcast is that progressive, though. This is basically laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, I'm definitely the Ruth Buzzy and the Joanne Worley. Oh, man, I was going to say, I'm around my <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> no, thank you for being here and honestly like this the, i love how the show turned out uh it was great working with you likewise and i and i hope i hope there's a season two i hope you're a part of it and i can't wait to see what what new stories everyone gets to tell yeah up next we get into drag race all-stars As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. The RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars Season 7 finale aired over the weekend. And spoiler alert, Jinx Monsoon was crowned the queen of all queens, while Raja beat out the rest of the bottom four for the title of Queen of She Done Already Done Had Herses. Marked the end of a season that included some big changes to the format and a more complimentary, less shady tone. What do we think of this season overall? I mean, massively entertaining. Everybody on the stage deserved to be there and um, really bring something. Like, I don't think anybody would even say, would suggest that Evie should have won the season, but she was magnificent throughout. That's like somebody who I would put in the quote unquote bottom two of the season still gave us, you know, signature personality, unbelievable lip, lip syncs, unbelievable looks. Um, I will say the 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 thing I would criticize, which is that we didn't get any critiques at all the entire season. The judges were mo mainly super flattering to the contestants which does make them look great mm -hmm. to me when it came to the final verdict after the lip syncs because they were so always complimentary it's like they could give the victory to whomever they wanted without having to weigh what was bad about each performance or what mm -hmm. they didn't like about each performance and so that felt a little bit slick to me because for example on a show like project runway i feel like when you're looking at the bottom two, the, the the two worst outfits of the week or whatever. It's usually about weighing which of the cons is worse, you know, which of, which of the infractions is more worthy of elimination. And so I felt watching this, particularly this final lip sync where I 
I didn't think Jinx dominated all three, all three of the ones she had to in order to win. Mm-hmm. It felt like they sort of arbitrarily gave it to her based on what the final game was when they just wanted to give it to her in general for having a great season. Yeah, I mean, that ADR of, you know, like um, the Queen's like performance all season will also like be considered. And I'm like, yeah, OK. And it's like, just say that up front, because I mean, that happens sometimes on Project Runway, you know, like I feel like, you know what I will say? The one show where it doesn't happen on enough and it annoys me and it truly is the competition is Top Chef. Like they will sit, they, they will send home like someone who's been a strong fucking chef all season because they fucked up a dish that week. But they're very upfront that like it's the competition each week. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, uh, and I, I was happy to see Raja pick up the whatever this like bottom rung thing they figured out was, even though I thought she was the second best performer all season. I just love that kind of drag queen where, first of all, let's talk about the speaking voice where like everything out of her mouth is like this. Like everyone's, everything's a little shit. That is butter. You know? That is honey. Like she could, she could drag you to hell and back and you'd still be like, I want to keep listening to your voice. Yeah, right. No, her voice is like an audio eye roll, you know, Uh, and fabulous uh, in that way. Um, She would have been great as a teacher on Daria. Yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking. I've been sleep deprived the past few days, so I've been feeling like Mr. DiMartino. Thank you. For that um, Drinking your iced uh, coffee and your eye bulging. Yes, yeah. That like vi- old Visine commercial veins uh, popping up. Um, no, but I, I, what's interesting about Drag Race to me is like I watch it every week. There are times I've skipped this uh, this season because because nobody's eliminated. You're sort of given the freedom to skip every once in a while. Um, you know, there's not urgency to watch the episode before Twitter has their takes or whatever. But it's such a natural part of my TV diet. It, it, it's it's like Jeopardy and that, of course, I'm watching it. Like, it, it's not like something I'm trying out. It's not like mm-hmm. something I, I even think to recommend in a way because it's it's like eating breakfast every day or something. There's so no other show that does what it does, which with its like super casual intersectionality. They always have like a bunch of contestants who are from a bunch of different places, a bunch of different influences, styles, mm-hmm. things that matter to them. And in particular with the, um, all-star season it is just super interesting to watch queens from old seasons compete with queens from new seasons because the nest the requirements for what it for how to be good on drag race are always changing and mm-hmm. you're always worried like are we leaving queens behind like has the definition changed so much that someone like this is the name coming to mind pandora box doesn't matter anymore but then you see them mix with the new queens and you realize oh they're still sisters and they're still um updating what they do too. And they still have ways that they can, you know, uh, force the show to make progress and stuff. You know, it's, it it felt like in certain ways, uh, you know, Jinx Monsoon came back and we're like, Oh, here comes this quaint old style queen. And then as the season went on, it's like, Oh no, we're still behind her. This show is lagging behind Jinx Monsoon and what she's able to do. So that was really cool to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you and I both saw the, um, RuPaul's Drag Race drive-in last year or something. And, um, like uh bianca you know like performed in that and like even she's picked up like lip syncing a bit yeah but right. even in a comedic way but it's like you have to like you learn a new skill especially if you're a drag queen and you're like you want to continue to have people coming to see you etc you know um what i will say about this season is the finale was very weird in that rue wanted to crown jinx and yeah. 
I think we've all heard, you know, about like um, people complaining to production throughout the uh, show being filmed, you know, that they felt the show was being slanted towards Jinx. Um, and then also crowning Raja because I think she wanted to celebrate Raja coming back, you know, and every like how much like Raja has played a part in like the history of Drag Race. But would you not be Monet Exchange losing to Jinx Monsoon and then being like, okay, but can I get the 50K? Yeah, right. It is yeah, wild. You lost, you lost but another, not in the correct brackets. Yeah. There was, there was another competition. And I'm like, well, if I'm good enough to be in this bracket, then why can't I just be the winner of that bracket? Yeah, right. That does suck. Somebody <laughs> outlined that... Um, Monet is exactly has the the exact same track record as Parvati from Survivor. In her yes. first season, she got sixth. In the second season, she won, and now she's the runner-up. Which that's pretty good company to keep. I mean, like if you associate any name with Survivor, it's that one. But I mean, um, you talked about TV diets and like things that like when people ask what shows we watch, like I don't even recommend RuPaul's Drag Race to people anymore because I just assume you watch it. It's like. It's wild that this show has become one of those in the sense of like Survivor, I just yeah. watch. Big Brother, I just watch. You know, like it's like Disney Liars, I just watch the way you watch Jeopardy. You know, it's like it's become a show that's just like it's always on. And if you are a person, if people know that you watch it, they talk to you about it and you don't bring it up, you know, around like people who don't discuss it, you know, but like you right. always have people to talk about drag race with because it is literally always on it's truly become our sports in a way Definitely. our gay sports in a way in that like there's always someone watching it at a bar it gets dragged yeah, i'm screaming at too. it right mm -hmm. like they Definitely. host viewing parties you know like it's it's a part of our community in such an interesting way no it's its own industry and i i, lo I just love how they cycle through these queens and then cycle them back in like they and, and it would be weird if they didn't like we want to keep hearing from these people and there's no better forum for them than this show and obviously being good at drag is not the same thing as being good at rupaul's drag race but you want to see them put through the ringer again you want to see some uh, urgency put behind a lip sync you know where there's something about bringing a competitive angle to drag that makes that gives it the ferocity that is the signature thing about drag. So it only enforces the, the qualities of drag we love. What do we think of the editing in that finale? Oh, well, I'm very curious about, they did a Nicki Minaj song, right? And they cut out- Swish, a, Swish. A, a, yeah, so I'm sorry, that's what. Katy Perry, Swish, Swish. That is a Nicki, Nicki Minaj Nicki Minaj's song. verse was cut out. <laughs> and then I heard that they actually filmed it and Jinx basically just watched Monet do the entire rap and then they went on with the lip sync. Now, that- I think almost constitutes unethical cutting that out of the final lip sync. <laughs> Let's talk about ethics in RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Monet Gate. I mean, I also <laughs> hated the editing of like she did an interview with Vulture with Paul McCallion. Um, it's a great interview, um, by the way. Um, but she talks about how like she opens up, like they don't even really show you what she's doing at the beginning either, where like she has a lipstick with like oh, yes. Jinx's name on it to like the eliminations that they used to do in All Stars. like, And I think that it's really funny and clever, but they didn't show it. They also did not, and I'm like, is this, Param I'm like, this is on Paramount Plus, you know? So like, what was the like standards and practices that didn't let us get to see like um, Monet like simulating like topping Trinity on stage during their lip sync? <laughs> 
The cutaway was, was so weird. Yeah, right. Obviously, they weren't literally having sex <laughs> in this lip sync. They ended up sort of simulating a sexual act, and they treated it like Elvis on fucking Ed Sullivan. Like, no one's seen anything from the waist down. And it's like, girl, it's not 1956, and I'm paying for this channel. Yeah. <laughs> Give leak the Snyder footage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was puzzling. Uh, who was your favorite like queens overall this season? F- favorite uh, queen? I mean, I I would say Jinx because it's not a given that somebody with old fashioned tendencies, a Neil Patrick Harris, if you will, will necessarily <laughs> flourish in a competition where you're supposed to be the next hot thing. You mm-hmm. know, so for her to give a dynamite. Judy Garland impression during the snatch game. And by the way, speaking of not givens, you're never sure if you're going to be watching anything remotely entertaining, let alone something that doesn't make you want to set yourself on fire when snatch snatch game comes on. Jesus Christ. So for her to come on with a full plan, full impression, and then also improvisational, seemingly improvisational things that were brilliant, like spelling sandwich S-A-N-D-W-I-D-G. Like, I don't think of Judy Garland as somebody with that kind of vocal tick. And she, for her to point that out with that joke was super observant and uh, hilarious. Mm, I really liked Shay this season. Uh, and I really loved her, like, her performance at the end. I mean, it's interesting that, like, we always, when we get to these, like, talent show parts of Drag Race, it's usually always, like, a queen doing, like, an original song at this point and performing. But there's really just something away. Like, her song was, like, it just felt on another level, you know? And yeah. her dancing, the fluidity, the Janet influence. The is, attitude. Is just sort of like, yeah. It's, yeah, mm-hmm. the attitude is there. And he's truly, like, I was watching that song that she was doing with like the payphone and the dancers. And I was like, I wouldn't just go see Shay do like a drag show. I would go to a Shay Kool-Aid concert. Yeah, right, right, right. No, she's uh, ferocious, which which you don't always get out of drag anymore. You know, it, it runs yeah. pretty cute and pretty um, pageanty, yeah. generally speaking. Yeah, so... Um, Overall. But honestly, nobody messed up. I mean, like, I want to sit here and be like, and guess who's a fraud? Blank. But they weren't. <laughs> Everybody brought something. Yeah. Even queens that I'm not, like, immediately, like, a stan of, like, a trinity, you know, I feel like they delivered. I, I, yeah. I thought Trinity actually won that lip sync against Monet in the final when they did So What by Pink, which, by the way, Trinity seemed to be dressed for. Um, yeah. And also just So What by Pink is one of the... It, it's so, like raging gym teacher songs raging female <laughs> gym teacher song I've i got think i my just lost my husband i don't know where yeah. he went <laughs> yeah jilted at the town bar vibes yeah uh, also like just also the lyric jessica simps or the nerve that she couldn't even finish the phrase. <laughs> By the way, anybody's name could have fit in that blank. If you're having a syllable problem, you don't have to use Jessica Simpson anyway. <laughs> but Poor it, Jessica. But isn't that so pink? I feel like we don't get enough yeah. interviews with her anymore because she's sort of become like a different kind of pop star and that like she's crossed over to just like, she has a very huge fan base, but it seems to be of like straight women and um, the kind of gay men that we don't talk to. Um. <laughs> no, she's very um, placid now. I would compare her arc to Queen Latifah. And that mm. when she came out, it was about a certain kind of hardness and attitude. And there are elements thereof. But like, you know, she's like kind of 
edging into a territory where you're going to be covering some standards soon, aren't you? I know. Right. You know, what's what I mean, once the old bones don't let her hang from the ceiling anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. But I feel like she the Jessica Sip lot is like she used to be like a real like bitch in interviews. A real bitch. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel like one of the last ones we got was like when she was on Watch What Happens Live and she talked about how like her old beef she had had with like Christina Aguilera and she was like, I mean, like, I would have beat that bitch up. <laughs> and I'm like, she would have. <laughs> no, right. I, I, I've seen the biceps. I know it's possible. Yeah. Uh, pink. I, miss, I, I, I like her. Oh, I think she actually. has a new song. I think she has a new something coming out um, in the future. I don't crave Pink. In fact, no. I mean, she's a really good vocalist, but I, I mean, it's like, I, I don't think you need to reinvestigate any of her catalog or whatever. Like, I'm not like, yo, you must listen to the, uh, what was that album called? Try This with, uh, oh. is that of God as a DJ on it? I think so. It's, um, I don't know. I like, I enjoy, I enjoy Pink a lot too. Um, but like, like if a Pink song comes on in the club, I'm there, um, especially if, you know, if this is like a classic one that was like really like a banger, like you'll know the lyrics to it, like it's fun. But no, I don't really like reinvestigate Pink. Except, well, yeah, I think you're surrounded by it. It's just in the ether. Like you'll run into just like a pill walking in the universe, you know. Mm -hmm. I will say that um, an underrated um, Pink song uh, from her album The Truth About Love is um, like Walk of Shame. I would say like those oh, songs like Walk one. of Shame and like Shut Walk of Shame and like Slut Like You. Like that was one of the last albums where I was just sort of like, oh, okay, like I think that was the last Pink album that I actually like when it came out. Like I listened to it a lot. That's the one with like Blow Me One Last Kiss and Just yeah. Give Me a Reason. I think my favorite song by her is who knew i i like a uh, poetic regret pink you know uh uh it's, it's sort of a springsteeny vibe of like what could have been had we stayed together honey you know that kind of vibe that's a really good song i think my favorite is actually like and this is like goofy but i think my favorite pink song is you and your hand uh, which is so, that's so <laughs> pink bitch attitude <laughs> fuck off go jack off and think about me <laughs> That, she's, she's so somebody who holds up two middle fingers in a picture that is you know energy. what yes. i feel like pink would be your snatch game oh i could do that yeah <laughs> that would be a funny character actually i could yeah. then you could like kind of you could kind of you know she's a straight woman but you know kind of dyke out or whatever that'd be fun yeah all right well shout out to all stars shout out to drag race um I was gonna say shout out to Drag Race not being on the air until Celebrity Drag Race returns, but I'm like, there's. I feel like there's like six international versions airing right now too. Yeah, no, you're you're never without it. It's it's the air we breathe, and I, I don't consume all of it anymore. Like so, like some international ones, I sit out. No, I don't have time for Drag Race like Eastern Siberia or wherever they're at now. <laughs> drag Race, Drag Race, Vladivostok. Yeah, I, I'm waiting for Drag Race Transylvania. Oh, no, that'd be great. Also, you could just sell that right in the room. You, All the girls will star in it. <laughs> uh, all right. We'll be right back with Keep It. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Let me guess. 
hold on. I'm going to stare into my crystal ball. I'm going to stare into that crystal ball from the Goosebumps cover. Be careful what you wish for. And yes. Lewis is doing a keep it about Jeopardy. Well, if you listen to last week's episode, <laughs> I complained about Jeopardy. And now I'm back for more. And I'll tell you why. Uh, a whole bunch of announcements were made about this current season. If you're sick of me talking about Jeopardy, guys, I don't know what to tell you. It's like what, what I was born to do. So it's like, <laughs> stop getting in the way of my passions, etc. Um, they announced a whole bunch of new things, a new uh, second chance tournament where contestants who uh, lost but barely in the past couple seasons get invited back with the potential that they can get in the tournament of champions. But specifically, there's a syndicated special coming out that they've not announced anything for. There's no host or anything yet, whatever. A pop culture jeopardy. And my keep it is to the producers because if you have not reached out to me by now, if, if my agent is not coming to me with an email in the next 11 seconds, <laughs> I, I am going to get on the roof of my parents' house where I am and weep in the form of a question. So please just know I'm a veil. I'm ready to, I don't know, host or research or... I think we should do it like Vanna White style where like all the uh, clues on the board have to be turned or pulled around. I'll manually do that. But please know I am dying for there to be a real pop culture game show in the world because as Ira and I sit here talk bandying whatever pink deep cuts or drag race uh, contestants you've forgotten about. It's like there's still no place where you can be definitively tested about your pop culture knowledge. Jeopardy gets into it a little bit. There will always be, you know, uh, um, a plays and playwrights category or a movie category, but that's one twelfth of the game. Mm -hmm. And it just kills me that not since like the World Series of Pop Culture, uh, which was a great VH1 show from the 2000s, or um, Debt, which was a show on Lifetime hosted by Wink Martindale. That was all pop culture trivia. That was really great. MTV's had a couple of great... Um, TV shows about it. We just don't have that. And people are overeducated about this stuff. Like they yeah. like stands, et cetera, need a place to be tested on their knowledge. And it shouldn't just be at a bar in West Hollywood. It should be yeah. on television. And I want these people to thrive. You know, I want the Lewis Fertels of the world to win the money they deserve. So, you know um, what? I agree. And I would like, like, listen, I'm not a trivia minded person. Jeopardy is not for me, but yeah. I would, I would love to compete. You, you would crush on, on this. This is what I mean. But like, that's what I mean. Like, you look at a show like Jeopardy and think, "Oh, I don't belong on that show." But you have the like, the mind for it. You just don't care about that particular subject matter. You know. Yeah. So like, this I feel like is a, a real opportunity to get people who would not normally be on Jeopardy and and like exalt a sort of gay nerddom that um you know really is like kind of boxed into the podcast universe. Really, you know, like. Well, yeah. I mean, cetera. there was a tweet recently about how like um. I think it was the anniversary of like best week ever and like I uh, debuting and I was sort of like it's weird how like when we were younger like best week ever debuted and like we would watch that and that was sort of like one of the first bursts of people just sort of like talking about pop culture like sort of seriously like on TV and I remember that was the era you know when like Chuck Klosterman sex drugs and Coco Puss came out you know and that sort of inspired me to want to like write about pop culture seriously um and it's weird that an entire generation of people who were sort of raised on like best week ever. Now we truly have jobs like podcasting and other things where we're just paid to do that. Right. No, we fulfilled our destinies. We're now the Michael Ian Black of I love the seventies, but <laughs> here now in 2022. 
Yeah, your your I love the seventies, and you know, like I've like I love the like two thousands, and we sort of blend in the middle with the eighties and nineties. Yes, hmm? right, and yeah, we 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 meet in the middle on like a Kathleen Turner movie or something, and then re- go back to our respective corners. <laughs> Ira, what is your keep it this week? My keep it this week um, goes to Issa Rae. Oh, yeah. Uh, now she is a famous uh, television star and producer, and, uh, and her new thing is called Rap Shit, which stars a young. Um, she's listed as actress, but I know her to be a rascal. Uh, <laughs> uh, the show is actually fantastic. I was at the premiere, uh, and I was truly just like overwhelmed with how excited I was to like see like Aida like on a screen and you know like see her on the carpet you know like I'm I'm so excited for her um until the episode two aired in that theater and she has to do a FaceTime call with her boyfriend who she's dating long distance in the show and she has phone sex and I was forced to watch Aida acting out phone sex while naked on a big screen and I didn't need to see that. Oh, my God. I didn't need no. to see that, Issa. I did not need to see that. I was truly, like, covering my eyes, feeling like a parent, feeling like a brother looking at his younger sister doing that. I was like, I don't need to see this. Oh, my. No. I, I mean, I don't mean to be paternalistic, but we raised this girl. Sorry. Uh, come on now. She did this to hurt us. Yeah. Um, and I was like, listen, you, that, is, that is one way to just jump into acting. Uh, and listen, she is truly acting in this show. So if you haven't seen Rap Shit, you should go watch it, everyone. You know, I just want to say it always kills me when like people who do like the job we do are good at acting. Like when I watch uh, Matt Rogers of, uh, I guess he has a podcast, but um, he's on the <laughs> that show. I love that for you. And it's like, oh, yeah, right. You're an actor like watching uh, Fire Island. It's just not the same thing as being off the cuff and comedic, which is what I think of all our friends is doing. But it's when, when they have this other skill, when they're like, you know, secretly, um, you know, like not every Ellen DeGeneres is good at being the star of the show, Ellen, you know, mm-hmm. but she fucking was, by the way, if you ever watched that show, Ellen was hilarious on that show. Um, but anyway, um, yes, I, of course I'm rooting for Aida and we miss her and stuff. And, uh, stardom was always, deeply in the fucking cards for her so it was it, i almost resentfully sat by with my winston cigarette as i watched this girl ascend into the <laughs> uh last note on that ellen thing since we started with ellen and we're booking yes. with her now that you know like the show's over um uh, i would honestly be fine with an ellen return okay. uh you know but you know what i would like to see bring the sitcom back I would love bring to, it I would back love on to do streaming and have it like now and like make jokes about how like people thought she was a bitch and just be this aged like over it angry the angry lesbian that I know she is angry at how like people have treated her angry about like how she had to become an ice queen to make it in the like to make it in Hollywood like I want to see that Ellen it's only just yeah. because we were joking before you know about like you know like Ellen and Neil Patrick Harris have always sort of been our like two like gays and it's like they came out around that same sort of like era they're like the stalwarts it's like if you mention like famous gay man it's like neil if you mention famous lesbian it's like ellen and i feel like he's had his you know like uncoupled you know there's there's this been this moment of seeing like a new yeah. side of him and like i i don't know i want to see a new side of ellen degeneres maybe that's controversial yeah. but i don't no, know i'd like I, to see it 
She was a great actress. No, I, I, no, I would like to see her version of Hacks, which is to say, like, I've been in the industry for a long time. I know the ups and downs. And now you get to be as world weary as I am. Yeah. You know, um, and I, I, and I'll, Roseanne without same, the racism. Yes. Right. And oh, QAnon-ness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And being yeah completely, utterly insane, irrevocably. But yeah, you know, uh, a white trash Riddler as I like to refer to Roseanne. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite Gretchen Wilson album. Yeah. Uh, well, that's our show this week. Yeah, it was a lot of show. Hope you could handle it all. Yeah. Uh, we'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Fertel. Our editor is Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer. Because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy.